It's actually the life supporting systems that take place far, far away, but are absolutely critical to the living, existing and the thriving of the built environment. Hello, I'm Basil Demaroudis, and welcome to The Forecast, the podcast exploring the critical issues shaping the future of our cities, our buildings, and the spaces in between. I'll be seeking out answers to what our industry must do to ensure a sustainable future. And to do that, I'll look over the horizon, talking to prominent thought leaders from the world of technology, culture, arts, philosophy, and education, exploring the critical factors that are influencing what our future cities will look like and the role the built environment will play in that future. Through these conversations, I hope that you'll enjoy some bite-sized insights and get to know some fascinating people along the way. You know what to do. Today, the Arctic and what's actually up there, why it matters. So I'm delighted to welcome Penn Haddo, legendary British polar explorer and ocean conservationist. I'm incredibly honored that you've joined us on the forecast today, Penn. I think I would need a good chunk of the podcast, actually, to recount all of your many achievements. Uh, You're the only person to have trekked solo and without resupply by third party from Canada to the North Pole, covering some 770 kilometers in 64 days, pulling a 265-pound sledge, no less. You're also the first Briton to have trekked without resupply to both the North and South Poles from the respective continents of North America and Antarctica. And since then, you've made numerous additional expeditions by boat, I'm pleased to say, and have conducted pioneering research into the wildlife, ecosystems, and marine pollution, and really dedicated your life to enhancing all of our understanding of the polar regions uh, and conservation of these systems, which is really absolutely vital to life on Earth. And in particular, your work has helped forecast how long the perennial sea ice cover would continue uh, to be a year-round surface feature of the planet. You're an author and have recounted your life and expeditions in a brilliant book called Solo. You're a celebrated TED speaker. And among many other accolades, you've been declared Hero of the Environment by Time magazine. You're an honorary patron of numerous organizations such as the Royal Scottish Geographic Society, British Exploring Society, and many others. And you now lead a brilliant organization called the 90 North Foundation, which is advocating for the creation of a North Pole Reserve supported by new international treaties. Welcome to the forecast, Penn. Whew, that was a lot. Um, <laughs> these are a long list of accomplishments and uh, I think are pretty extreme to say the least. I guess to start, I'm, I'm wondering where the passion for exploration and for pushing yourself physically and, and psychologically came from. Uh, is it true, for example, I've read as a young boy, you used to stand outside in the freezing cold with barely any clothes on? Well, <laughs> to be fair, I was kind of made to do that. Uh, it wasn't voluntary, uh, not in the first instance. So, Is that um, still legal in this country? No, I'm... <laughs> I think I'm pleased to say that it's no longer no longer legal. Um, so I have sort of two strands really that uh, led perhaps in my youth to where I have got to now. Uh, the first would be that it's my link to Captain Scott, Captain Robert Falcon Scott. So um, as he was dying, uh, he lay in his tent writing letters to friends and family and sponsors. And one of them was to his wife, Kathleen. And in that letter, um, which he never signed, so it's his thought that he was continually adding new paragraphs to that letter as he wrote to other people. Uh, He said, get the boy interested in the natural world. There are some schools that see that as more interesting than competitive sport. And so these were the dying words of uh, one of our most famous explorers to the most important person in his mind 
in the generation to follow, which was, of course, his son. He had only one child, hmm. Peter, which I find quite interesting in, in itself because Peter, who many of you will uh, now know as Sir Peter Scott, went on to found the WWF, uh, the world's largest uh, environmental organisation by, by membership. He was the first to do a natural history programme on national television worldwide um, called Look, based at Slimbridge. And uh, he handed over the baton to Sir David Attenborough for that role. He also set up the Wildlife and Wetlands Trust, and he played a part in uh, the creation of the Antarctic Treaty System. Now, he uh, was brought up by a, a nanny in, who, it was her first job, Enid in, in Wigley was her name. Uh, she was 18 at the time. Kathleen, the mother, took, him, took her on and said, get the boy uh, into the fresh air and toughen him up. Hmm. His father has obviously died in the most extreme circumstances. I don't want my boy to feel the cold in the same way. So uh, from the age of three to eight years old, Peter uh, was put out in the cold for longer, longer periods with less and less clothing and encouraged to lead a, a relatively Spartan-like regime. And uh, this nanny, uh, Enid, then went on to look after as her next job, my father, when he was a little boy. And uh, he heard about all these great stories uh, and, and the physiological and psychological effects that this, this had on Peter. And uh, although his mother, my grandmother, never had any need to make my father like this, he uh, took it upon himself that if he ever had a son, wouldn't it be a good thing to put him through this? So I was my father's first son. And uh, I was born in, the, in Perth, in Scotland, where I can assure uh, listeners it is considerably colder than when, where Peter was uh, toughened up in southern England. And, uh, uh, and I had this process, Spartan regime, done to me uh, until finally a guest turned up unannounced and found frostbite on my face. And, uh, and I was presented to my mother who said, right, that is it. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> the experiment, the process for the procedure is over. So um, Enid, she was then, my father looked after her in her old age. He took her on and, and she lived and died with us. And notionally, she was given this job of toughening me up under my father's sort of instruction. And uh, she always referred to me as half-baked compared to Peter, who was fully baked in polar terms. But you had some uh, some deep-seated inspiration uh, yourself. I, I think I read somewhere that your, your mother had to pluck you out of a tree after you'd been <laughs> hanging there upside down for four hours until your head was so swollen that she was <laughs> sort of rushing, considered rushing you off to a &E. I mean, there must be countless stories like that of your... Of your yeah, of a, relatively wayward youth <laughs> i have always been profoundly interested in what it is like in an extreme situation but yes i did hook my, my legs over a, a branch about eight ten foot above the ground and just thought how long can i suspend myself like this uh, and what what would it feel like when things get really challenging and uh, yeah, it turns out that I'd been there for nearly four hours. And my mother popped out, for, you know, for lunchtime and wondering where the hell I was, and um, was shouting away. And I wasn't really able to speak at this point. Anyway, she found me upside down, head quite swollen, as you say, and uh, not being—I <laughs> hadn't really thought through the consequences. When this uh, experiment being pushed to the point of failure, I just became unconscious and fell out of the tree. I probably broken my neck, but uh, so fortunately, I was recovered. But I think quite a lot of this also came from my father, who was a, very much a modern father, always at the matches, uh, supporting us when we were playing game, sports and so on. Um, and he gave me a lot of coaching, really, about how to, how to deliver on being ambitious. Whatever it is I wanted to do, well, how could you go further and perhaps go further than other people? So I had um, a, a lot of strategic and tactical 
advice and and um, um, an input from my father. And he used to tell stories about my um, great great uncles mainly. Um, they they were a remarkable uh, family. The father had been the chairman of P and O at its full might in the uh, second half of the eight, uh, 19th century. He was chairman for 10 years, he was a director for 40 years, and he had eight boys and a daughter. And of those eight boys, the oldest was the first to make an ascent of the um, Matterhorn in 1865. Uh, he was only 19 years old. He'd never climbed, done any technical climbing in his life before, and um, he made it to the top. He also uh, fell, of the seven climbers, uh, four fell on the descent so he didn't make it successfully down and, and he was alluded to quite a lot so these stories of resilience and perseverance sounded like they were they, they surrounded you in your in your younger years they did i, I think my, my father struggled ultimately to make it in the grown-up world of work if you will he was extremely clever extremely entertaining um but his role became to be my coach and tutor and to perhaps put the Haddos back on the map. I and mean, certainly that's really the take I had over time. That's what emerged. Well, you certainly did that with your, your legendary uh, achievements in exploration. And uh, so if we just fast forward to your Arctic journey in particular, where you trekked solo to the North Pole, give us a glimpse into what it was like on those journeys, especially that, that's, that 64 days you spent all alone. Well, I can state the blooming obvious. The journey itself is extreme and I really go as far as the extreme beyond words because unless you have really put yourself uh, into this situation it, it is very hard to convey both the psychological pressures which are the most considerable and the environmental pressures which are considerable and the two interacting creates this uh, very marginal ability to exist and perform. So one perspective on the challenge that I'd set myself is that there is no map that you can use to uh, understand what lies ahead. If you were to make an ascent of Everest, you would know all the sections of the route, what the technical challenges were, which ropes you would be using, when you would start to use your oxygen, and so on. It is not like that on the Arctic Ocean, because essentially you're setting off from the northernmost beach, one of the northernmost beaches in the world, off the northern Canadian coast. And the reason I am able to make it to the North Pole on foot is because this ocean has this relatively thin covering of sea ice, uh, which essentially is uh, a, a number of ice flows all sort of relatively uh, pushed together as they scrunch up against the Canadian coast, the winds and currents pushing them towards the coast. The map, or chart more accurately, is blank because there are no known predictable features along the route in terms of the surface that you're walking and or indeed swimming across. Out here, my map was a blank sheet of paper with the lines of longitude and latitude marked on and there was no other information. You just took on the chin whatever the weather and the surface conditions, i.e. the sea ice or not sea ice, open water, uh, presented hour by hour. That is a sort of a fact but the psychological strain that that puts on one is immense because you essentially have no idea whether the year that you're setting off is a, is a year in which it's even possible to do what you're doing. Uh, you just keep pushing on and having a series of actual psychological tools, very specific tools that I developed to address the five 
scenarios that I knew I would face and would find very hard to deal with. I think the comparison to Everest is a, is a good one, actually, because I've heard that uh, a solo North Pole trek really being described as, as mankind's most severe tests, at least equivalent to climbing Everest alone and, and without, without oxygen. So, you know, yours is a real story of, of courage and, and survival. And, and, of course, you did all that, as I say, towing a, a sledge. And I just want to pause for a second just to, just to think about that. And, and I have to ask, well, A, first of all, what on earth were you thinking? But more specifically, what, what goes through your mind as you, as you sort of slowly slip off the ice into the open water, the, f- the freezing deep water, all alone, literally weeks from anyone else, and start to swim to the next neighboring ice flow? What, what's going through your mind, if anything? Well, I think the first thing to say is that I conceived of this project, uh, which would position me, if you like, in the sort of the leadership um, layer of uh, the sort of polar explorer adventurer community. Uh, back in 1989, I made my first attempt in 1994, a second attempt in 1998. So 2003, uh, when I was uh, finally successful, you know, it was 15 years down the line from first conceiving this. And I learned a huge amount through those previous two attempts. But I also set up the world's first guide service to the North Pole. And that enabled me to build up this body of experience. So I had about 10,000 hours, you know, the um, famous 10,000 hours that Malcolm Gladwell refers to in his book, The Outliers, which sort of position you with that, that volume of experience as being capable of leading one's field in whatever field it is, whether it's playing the violin or sport or what have you. So when I finally um, set off in 2003, I was the first person to, to really understand that you could no longer just walk uh, on skis, trek, if you will, to the North Pole um, in a relatively straight line because there's far too much open water. As the um, sea ice becomes thinner and there's more open water, the ice flows are moving around, jiggling around uh, in a much more dynamic way. And so I had an immersion suit um, designed, which I could put on over my polar boots and all my polar clothing, zip it up and lower myself into either open water, a little bit like you might lower yourself off the edge of a uh, canal towpath into a canal. Except a lot colder. Yes, apparently it was a lot colder. And, <laughs> and, I, and I can confirm it's a lot colder. I mean, I was doing this in for the first 25 days, it was minus 35 to minus 46 as an ambient air temperature. That excludes any sort of wind chill factors that would just add on to that. And you asked what went through my mind. I, mean, <laughs> I was the first person to know the distance from the start to the finish. I wasn't going to have to um, circumnavigate endless amounts of open water to try and find a way to the next ice flow and then straighten up and head north again. I knew, which again was a psychological advantage, huge, that I was going to do 770 kilometres. So I had straightened the route by an innovation. Even if that meant crossing open water? Yeah. By now, now, no one had done this doing before. Doing Yeah. This is sort of new territory. And doing it solo... I mean, it's nerve-wracking. I, I confess that almost every time I would spend a few minutes, unless it was sort of blindingly obvious that there was no other option, just seeing if there were any other options by turning left or right when you hit the water and just seeing if that perhaps there was a meeting of the ice flows a little bit further along. But at the end of the day, the whole point was I didn't have to do that and I shouldn't do that. I could straighten the route and therefore make better use of my food supplies. And, of course, you're you're making progress some days of 
good progress. And other days, I'm sure you've, you feel like you're going backwards just because the way the ice flows are, are working. You would be walking and traveling and swimming countless kilometers, miles, and, and yet here you, here you are moving backwards. That's right. So in that analogy that you uh, referred to of, of Mount Everest and going solo, it was like going solo uh, without supplemental oxygen by the hardest route that had been climbed on Everest. And I say that because of the two routes to the uh, North Geographic Pole from the coast, uh, one is from Russia, and uh, and that had been done, and one was from Canada, which hadn't been done. And it was regarded, the Canadian route, as the harder of the two routes, because although it was a slightly shorter route, in the first instance, when your sledge was at its heaviest, and the weather temperatures are at their coldest, which drastically increases the frictional drag of the sledge as you try and move it uh, northwards, you get all, the, all these ice flows piling up, basically being concertinaed up against the, the Canadian coast, because that's the way that the current and the uh, surface winds work. And your sledge is at its heaviest because you haven't used any food or fuel yet. There are four and a half thousand of these ridges, and they average about two metres in height. So you're actually pulling the sledge that you can hardly pull on the flat up over these things. You do that by relaying um, loads out of the sledge first to lighten the sledge load uh, and, uh, and before taking the sledge over. And four and a half thousand times two meters is nine thousand meters. Well, Everest is only eight thousand eight hundred and forty-eight, and you're lowering the, lowering the sledge uh, fully laden down on the other side as well. So, you start to get the feeling that this is actually quite a difficult challenge. The reason it's the hardest route is partly because of what I've just described, and partly because the closer you get to the pole, that last twenty-five percent of the distance, the ice is flowing much more quickly. In fact, it's walk it's flowing almost as fast as you are walking north. So. For the last few days, you're on a conveyor belt going backwards pretty much faster than you can walk forwards. And I say pretty much because, of course, for 12 hours a day, you set, you're setting up your tent and taking your tent down in the morning. You're preparing your foods, which can take a, a number of hours, and you are uh, having a sleep. Well, in that time, you are going backwards. Okay. So how do you ever get there? Answer, you don't stop sledging you just keep going day and night day and night day and night i think i did three days and three nights non-stop to avoid that so what did it feel like i have to ask you when mm. the uh, to finally achieve your goal that you must remember at that moment when that last crunch of your boot against the snow when you said i am now here what was that like it was utter utter relief that i would never have to think about this project again not because i hated the project but because it had absorbed so much of my time i knew i could do this project but i hadn't done it you know i tried twice before it took me 15 years but i've done it excellent <laughs> big tick um but as i had no plans for the future none in terms of what next i um i had this immense feeling of of uh wow i can really you know, I've got 80% of my brain back to apply to normal things, family things, and um, next steps. And I, and I kind of realized it was never the finishing post. I sort of knew that it wasn't, but not really, because to me it kind of was the finishing post getting to the pole. But it was uh, the moment of getting there, it was that realization within a few minutes that it actually was just a stepping stone. But I had no waypoint to go to uh, in the future at that point. You talk about this um, this extreme barrenness and uh, visual deprivation, which, as you say, psychologically must have been been challenging with nothing at all really to focus on for, for months on end other than this rather featureless white landscape. We know that that's actually now not true. Tell us what's up there. It's, a, it's a, an area that's, in fact, rich in, in life, isn't it? The Arctic Ocean and its sea ice cover 
its average thickness is two to three metres over the entire Arctic Ocean over an entire 12-month period. So it's a, it's a rough figure. And it is sea ice. Uh, it's frozen seawater, uh, which in itself is a bit of an oxymoron because you can't freeze the salts in the seawater. So what happens is you get a, essentially a, uh, the water freezes and a honeycomb structure forms and all the salts, all the ions of the different minerals, including obviously sodium chloride, gets extruded out of the base of the sea ice. So in two years or so, that sea ice, if you hacked away at it and melted in a pot, it would be entirely drinkable. Apparently, something like 70% of the world's fresh water is in the polar region, isn't it? The role of sea ice at a sort of global scale and in a geophysical terms is it acts as a giant, reflective, protective, white heat shield. Basically, over 90% of incoming solar energy gets pinged straight back out. It doesn't get converted. The short wave lengths don't get converted. It pings straight back out into space. As this shrinks, and we've lost about 40% of this heat shield by the end of the summers so far, and that whole 40% has gone really in the last four decades. So you could crudely say it's like 10% a decade we've been losing. Uh, And it is forecast to continue actually at a slightly accelerated rate uh, of loss. So this heat shield is shrinking. And when you flip a white reflective surface of the sea ice with snow on it to open water, you know, an ocean dark blue, if you will, that actually absorbs 90%. So you've got a a massive switch from no energy absorption or minimal energy absorption, heat basically, into almost a maximum amount. And so the upper layers of the Arctic Ocean's waters are heating, and they're actually heating at a rate faster than any other ocean environment. So you may say, well, that all sounds quite interesting, Penny. You've got a a, a protective heat shield that's getting less and there's a bit more energy being absorbed up into the Arctic. The big point is that that um, sea ice cover has provided a refrigeration unit, a cooling unit, if you like, for the northern hemisphere. And as we lose that coolant or that refrigeration process, um, all manner of unintended consequences will unfold from the equator up all the way up to the North Pole. It's not just a local situation that's changing. It's going to have implications uh, across the Northern Hemisphere. Clearly, there's tremendous climate change implications of what you what you describe. And I think the, the, the notion of the Earth's climate being largely impacted or greatly impacted by this these features, which I think we're, we still, frankly, don't fully comprehend, I think is, is something that is hopefully coming clear and clear in people's conscience. But I think there's uh, there's a secondary point here. Maybe it's even the primary point, isn't there, Penn, which is around this richness of, of biodiversity that sits up there underneath this seemingly barren landscape. Tell me more about that. So, yeah, setting aside Christmas cards, which are the bane of my uh, professional life because they will keep showing penguins being eaten by polar bears. Uh, my and, kids want to know, by the way, how you didn't get eaten by polar bears, but maybe I'll ask you that. Well, they, yeah, I'm surprised we're not, they weren't asking how I didn't get pecked by a penguin. <laughs> I mean, the key point number one is that uh, polar bears live uh, up north and the penguins live down south and never have the two uh, met each other. But, of course, everyone's aware that the sea ice is melting and they are aware that polar bears um, are going to be increasingly threatened by this. What people, on the whole, do not appreciate is that sea ice is a habitat. So 40% sea ice loss is 40% habitat loss. And you think, well, 
habitat <laughs> implies something's living up there. What, what could possibly be living up there apart from the odd polar bear wandering around? And Penn. And me, of course. Uh, and um, so, so the answer is there are animals living on the sea ice, of course, the polar bears and um, Arctic fox, surprisingly, um, although they don't really swim, they can't swim any distances. They are uh, found up right, hundreds of kilometres uh, out to sea on the sea ice, and they depend on on um, sniffing out the kills that the bears have left behind, the seals, basically. Um, that's how they survive. It's easier for them, what's statistically more successful for them to go out onto the sea ice into an environment they're not really prepared for uh, in, in seawater terms. Uh, than stay on the land and try and find uh, food there. And then you've got walruses, Pacific walrus in particular, living on the sea ice uh, in the Arctic Ocean. And you've got then below the waterline, you've got the narwhal, the, the unicorn of the sea, if you will, and the um, beluga whales, the, the white whales, and three species of seal, ringed, ringed ribbon and bearded seals are, are living underwater. But the interesting thing is that all of these, what you might call charismatic megafauna, the big mammals, are dependent on the existence of fish, the polar cod, uh, that uh, specialise in breeding and living throughout their lives uh, around sea ice. And they're about 30 centimetres long, they're not very big, but they dominate the fish species in this region. And those fish depend on the plant life and animal life that live inside and on the undersurface and eventually for those that treat it as a nursery, the sea ice, they then hatch out of the sea ice into the waters. That's what the fish depend on. So we're talking about phytoplankton um, and zooplankton. So the fish then feed on that and then the bigger animals feed on that. It's actually in, in some sense it's quite a simple ecosystem but it all depends on the existence of sea ice, which, as we know, is shrinking. And I can tell you that within the next 100 years, it is forecast by, by serious players in this area of science that there will be no sea ice at any time of the year by about 2125. So that's almost exactly 100 years from now. And I can add that most computer forecasts uh, have been underestimating continually what we actually observe in reality up there. So is that is it actually is the Arctic? Would you say the fastest changing habitat on planet? I mean, again, the mm. the, the you, know, you talk about the charismatic uh, megafauna, and I think we all would feel a tremendous sense of loss if elephants or tigers or lions cease to exist. But the the phytoplankton and the Arctic char hardly make it to the to the to the front pages of the of of the newspapers. No. So um, we need to get to the deeper point here, which is that. These megafauna, these big mammals, are really can, can be viewed as indicators of what's going on at, at a sort of uh, less visible um, way. Biodiversity is probably best seen as meaning the range of species, the sheer number of species you've got going on, multiplied by the abundance, the number of each of those species, a uh, number of individuals present multiplied by the health factor, if you will, of those species. If, if a whole species is really struggling in its environment, then that means your biodiversity is sort of compromised. So if you put those three things together, you get connections and an ecosystem, which is what biodiversity creates, 
it, it emerges uh, along the lines of complexity theory. So if you've got enough animals, different species at enough abundance, um, and they're all relatively healthy, out of that chaos, if you like, will come a system. And over the millennia, an ecosystem has emerged. And the problem is that if you pull a major factor out of that uh, equation, such as the sea ice, there are going to be serious knock-on effects. What do ecosystems do for us sitting down here in, in London, in our cities? Mm. You know, why, why should we care? Do the ecosystems play any kind of important role as we go about our day-to-day lives? I do fully understand why people think, well, surely we just focus on the immediate environment around our buildings or around our cities. Uh, that's what we really need to look after. Uh, and in a, in a way, they're almost... Uh, they're the least of our concerns because the scale isn't there. And biodiversity sort of in at a regional level or in global level operates at huge scale. And when I, again, talk about biodiversity, what, I'm, what we, Basil, are really talking about is life-supporting systems and life-supporting services. That's what they are. And it's like once you deeply appreciate that, all of a sudden, and that they are stressed and are and up to a point doomed, it's like... That should be a serious wake-up call for people. What, what is it doing? What are the ecosystem services that it provides? Because that's what ecosystems do. They provide life-supporting systems and services for the global community of life, including humans. Let's have a quick look then at what these ecosystem services are that biodiversity provides that enables us to live on this planet. One is regulation services. So, for example... The cold water of the Arctic Ocean absorbs carbon dioxide at faster rates, more readily than temperate and tropical oceans. And so it sequesters, it takes carbon out of the atmosphere. And obviously that is a huge service it provides currently as we're putting far, you know, far too much carbon dioxide into the air. The plants, single cell plants very often, um, algae if you like, the phytoplankton, they consume the oxygen out of this upper layer of ocean. In that way, plant life in particular is providing a carbon sequestration service, taking the carbon out of the upper layer of uh, the Arctic Ocean. So that's that's regulation. Tell so me about it. the other, other okay. categories. Of so we've got provisioning. Uh, now, provisioning services from ecosystems are things like seafood, so much fishing goes on around the edges of the Arctic Ocean in the North Pacific and North Atlantic, and they are largely enabled by the nursery grounds, if you will, that are provided by the Arctic Ocean region. The third uh, one is support. So there are supporting services, and that actually is the habitat, you know, one easy example. So a habitat, like sea ice, is really an enabler of the fo- the, of the former two, um, regulation and provisioning. And if you've got 40% loss of a habitat, you're going to get a reduction in the former two. And the last one is cultural, uh, which is sort of quite sort of a um, bit, bit intellectual, but simply it existing provides, can I say, food for thought for um, for artists and, uh, and academics and intellectuals and understanding how the bigger system works. So without it, we are poorer intellectually in the broadest sense of of intellectual. Those are the sorts of things that we are providing. So in fact, when you are, uh, as an organisation, as a business perhaps, looking at your ESG and looking at 
reducing your carbon footprint, that is super key. And it is absolutely right that that is the focus. But in parallel with that, there is something going on at an even faster rate, which is marine and indeed uh, terrestrial uh, species uh, extinctions. And it, it is imperative that, you, that the ESG um, function starts to appreciate that biodiversity, by which we really mean ecosystem services or life-supporting system services for all us as individuals and indeed as businesses, is at risk and needs to be built into the ESG agenda of businesses uh, as a matter of urgency. But tell me, Penn, hasn't biodiversity rates always ebbed and flowed? And, and what is there to really suggest that we're, we're entering some sort of um, ecological recession? Something like 99% of, of all uh, organisms that have ever lived are, are now extinct. So what, why is it different this time? Basil, that is a rather large question. Thank you so awfully much. <laughs> are humans going to be around in 100 million years? Best guess, probably not. So it is a matter of scale. Are your children going to be around in the next 100 years? Well, probably, and our grandchildren. And so I think one view is that we have a responsibility as our generation finds itself the guardians or custodians of our planet to ensure that we can hand uh, a planet over uh, to our children that is uh, functional, at the very least, uh, and preferably thriving. This is something that we are not doing right now. We just don't really care. We don't, because if we really cared about what's coming their way, we would be absolutely driven with every fibre of our body to, to sort of turning the situation around and we're seriously not as a nation from all levels from the individual the household the, the local community the nation the and the global uh, environment we will get there or we won't and if we don't we're putting the next generation or two into a really frightening I mean it is frightening let me explain I want to just get this across I was put on the stage with the Secretary General of NATO um, at Lloyd's of London, this was in 2010, and in New York, and it was to a businessman's audience, invited audience of business leaders. And you think, what on earth is Penn, as a polar explorer, doing alongside someone like that? And their answer is this. I was saying, this is the, the rate of change, because to answer a point you made earlier, yes, the Arctic Ocean is the fastest changing environment on earth. I was standing on the stage with this Secretary General, and my role was to say, look, Big stuff is happening at scale. You can't see it, but it's happening. And you as businesses need to understand this and start developing strategies to address it. His argument uh, that he put out was, we as NATO, we can defend the Schengen area, basically, from migration. Uh, and we have the military resources to do that. But at the point that governments ask us to defend the Schengen area uh, within Europe um, from migration outside, we'll have lost because we won't actually be able to do it. The numbers of people that are going to uh, 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 come in fr from areas that are suffering from climate change in particular um, is going to be immense. Um, and, and of course, um, I think we can all agree also that in the four and a half billion years of, that the Earth's existed, and while there has been many other episodes of biodiversity loss and mass extinctions, this is the first time that actually one of the species itself has largely been responsible for it. Yes, that, that is exactly right. Coming back to your point, um, 
Yeah, I wasn't trying to avoid it, but that is, is exactly right. And it's the speed of change as well. I mean, it's true, you know, an, an asteroid hits Earth, uh, things ha change uh, instantly. But uh, we are responsible for it. And, um, and in the same breath, it, we are capable of managing it. In the 20 years, really, since that your famous Polar Trek, you've clearly been spending uh, an incredible amount of time and energy focused on on conservation, habitat, biodiversity, particularly around the the polar regions, which which brings me really to the work of the uh, of your foundation, the Ninety North Foundation. Tell me tell me more about that. Well, put simply, we are exclusively focused on um, catalyzing the process within the within the policymaking community to create the world's largest uh, wildlife reserve. It, it is a marine reserve, but it's uh, actually the largest reserve period uh, globally. And it's for the international waters that surround the North Pole. It's an area about the size of the Mediterranean Sea. It's nearly three million square kilometers. And it's necessary because as the sea ice retreats, by, by 2050, there will be a navigational uh, possibility for international shipping to come rather than through Suez and Panama, from uh, Southeast Asia, they will be uh, going up through the Bering Strait between Alaska and Siberia, and then heading due north, straight up th over the North Geographic Pole, down the other side, and if you like, splitting either to the right um, to Rotterdam and European ports, or to the left round under Greenland to uh, the ports of New Jersey and the US eastern seaboard. And there are up to sort of 47% savings in doing that. Within another 50 years, so from 20, that's by 2050, by 2100, pretty much it's going to be uh, an open ocean for all times of the year for that rerouting of international shipping. They've also got the possibility uh, and, and frankly likelihood of uh, commercial fishing, industrial scale fishing taking place for the first time up there, which is really scary because that's just physically extracting the species and, and reducing uh, abundancy as well. And then the third one is uh, oil and gas and seabed surface uh, mining, which is an emerging sort of uh, sector within industrial mining. Now, there is good news on all of this. There's already an international voluntary agreement not to fish in the central Arctic Ocean, these international waters, for another 16 years. And, and everyone is signed up to that to all intents and purposes. The Chinese, the Russians, the Koreans, the EU, America, and so on. It's a matter of flipping that into a permanent and legally enforceable ban, if you will. International shipping... The three of the five biggest container shippers in the world have said, we are never going to go into the Arctic Ocean. We're not going to do it. Too delicate. Um, so that is something we want to build on and, uh, and build a coalition of support for that. And then the third is mining. And the good news is that the, the, there's a, a, such a small amount, geologically, uh, it would suggest, of oil and gas in this central Arctic Ocean region that it's probably not going to be an issue. In fact, it's something the oil industry could support because they're not really going to be interested in it. The stars are well aligned for this to be brought about. And how would you codify that? What is the what's the end goal? Is it is it are you advocating for another sort of treaty, or what would what would success look like there? Um, so we uh, would be working through the uh, United Nations International Maritime Organization, which happily is based in the UK, uh, in London, uh, on the South Bank near Lambeth Bridge. It's actually the only UN um, body that's based in the UK. And they have an application process to create what they call a particularly sensitive sea area. And so we will be working through them to establish that. And ultimately, that involves undertaking an environmental impact assessment as to what is the cost of not protecting keeping surface vessels out of this area. There is then 
lastly, a, a new UN body being created at the moment under the High Seas Treaty called the, um, well, it's known as the BBNJ, which is um, Marine Biodiversity Beyond Areas of National Jurisdiction. So it means for the first time, when this is ratified within five years or so, uh, it means that legally enforceable protection can be uh, put in place in international waters. Fifty percent of the Earth's surface is international waters. The sexiest project, if I can put it like that, these days, is that um, is the North Pole region because it has the North Pole that nearly every human on Earth has some sort of understanding of or. Uh, awareness of. It has the polar bears, which is obviously one of the most charismatic megafaunas, and it has the biggest visual manifestation of this problem we're all wrestling with now, which is climate change and, and the global warming. And already a community has been assembled, actually driven by the US leadership um, through the Arctic Council to get this uh, voluntary ban on commercial fishing in place. So working with the UNIMO is the first step. And then at some point, we'll be able to flip that into the application process that emerges through this BBNJ um, treaty, which is like a, a modification of the High Seas Treaty. So I'm providing leadership on this campaign, and um, we uh, are looking to resource our team of uh, advocates and researchers. So we have a, un a partnership with the University of Exeter, which is uh, looking to deliver a £30 million research programme over the next eight years that's super-focused, very much applied research that will support, will build the scientific case um, for the need for this reserve. And then we have our advocacy team that essentially identifies a, a, a nation state who will represent us at the UNIMO and then later the BBNJ. And we will supply the information through them to bring this about. I want to bring this a little bit back home to our cities and buildings and, and our, our customers in the real estate industry who are ultimately businesses as, mm. as tenants and, and occupiers. And it, I mean, the, the issues that you describe and the complexity of these issues are, are tr tremendous, really, and the implications for, for businesses. And just thinking about what some of those implications might be, what would you say to that? Where do you jump off there? Okay, so I think first base is the ESG agenda. And quite rightly... The super focus of businesses has been to address their carbon footprints and uh, work towards carbon neutrality. However, coming out fast on the inside lane is biodiversity and the need for businesses to address this. I've uh, had talks with um, Standard & Poor, um, who one of, your, one of the big credit rating agencies. Businesses will know that I'm talking to here that there are four questions in their uh, main questionnaire that they send out that uh, assists with their assess credit rating assessments that are focused exclusively on biodiversity. They're quite open, generalised questions at the moment. But uh, equally, people will know that over time, and it's going to be much quicker than people perhaps currently realise, that is going to become a formal part of the assessment. Uh, there will be a biodiversity section. And uh, if people haven't, haven't got good stuff in there, two big things happen. One is the availability of um investment and the affordability of it the price you're going to pay for it and i'd be the first to um, support uh, and endorse all efforts to uh, manage our, our carbon uh, situation and to get to carbon neutral status as soon as possible but there is no point in addressing solely that if the life supporting systems and processes driven entirely 
by biodiversity are not addressed as well because they are under super stress. We have a whacking great analogy going on right now. You know, global economics is like a, a global ecosystem. And, and if you look at giant systems like world economics as like a Jenga tower, or indeed like an ecosystem with biodiversity as, an, as a Jenga tower, and you start pulling out the blocks as you do it as a family game, and it's the last one to put the block. I can tell you now, no scientist will ever tell you how wobbly that structure is or which animal species or level of abundance within a species is critical that if you pull that out the system collapses that it is a similar thing if you pull out one piece of a biodiversity led ecosystem it can cause uh, chaos and it will be irreplaceable within the built environment all the organizations businesses involved are focused on carbon but it's very hard in reputational terms to communicate how exciting it is that you are doing less bad. You know, you're generating lots of carbon dioxide in the environment, but now you're not doing quite so much of that. And we have aspirations to do, you know, even less of that. Well, great. Good for you. Well, I mean, that's a slightly unkind view, but it's, it is really hard to package that in an interesting way that really excites people. And by the way, you know, it is doable to be made exciting, but uh, but it's not done very well at the moment. And so it kind of becomes a sort of a box ticking exercise, which is frankly, the, the, the you know, it's a step forward from doing nothing, but it's it's not really gripping the situation. Uh, our key point, I would suggest. How, so how the question is, how do you do more good? How do you get on the front foot and start doing more good rather than just doing less bad? And I would suggest the answer is to invest in things like biodiversity by which i mean support research that applied research that actually informs ultimately how organizations including businesses uh, can start to support the recovery program that we need to put in place for everything uh, that's uh, involved with biodiversity so t tell me a little bit more about that, because I, I know you've advocated that businesses need to do more to, to partner with researchers and scientists and to address these big environmental questions uh, of our time and take this really, truly systems-based approach. What does that look like in, in your mind, and and how does that more specifically, again, just thinking about our, our businesses and, and customers and, and, and occupiers of our buildings, what is success going to be look like? Because I think you're right to be cynical a little bit about the, the sort of ESG agenda. And I think there are far too many businesses that are, are using ESG uh, to create some sort of defensible moat that allows them to carry on conducting businesses as usual. Is that a fair statement, do you, would you say? And, and what does it say about the businesses that are going to be the future leaders uh, 10, 20 years from now when perhaps there is not going to be any more Arctic sea ice left and we will be faced with these deep habitat and uh, biodiversity problems. I think the next point to make is that businesses that think that it's all about them and how sustainable can we make our business, because business is slightly appropriated the word, it's not really, from my end of the telescope, it's not really about individual businesses' um, sustainability, but business has rather taken over the word and said, well, it's, you know, can we keep our business lasting longer? And actually, it turns out that if we do good things with the environment or seem to be doing good things, then uh, that will help to us to be more sustainable, which is, I think, to completely miss the point. And over time, as this reality check emerges, 
it is those businesses that have taken a leadership position uh, in their response to the biodiversity challenges who will survive um, and thrive. And for those that have taken a box-ticking approach, they may survive, but they won't thrive until they seriously um, measure up in the eyes of the credit rating agencies. And and for those that have just can't just think it's you know what it's just not for us uh, i think they will wither and i think this is all going to happen at great speed everything uh, seems to be happening faster and faster including the um the fate of uh, however big the business is i think a, a third point i'd make is that there are very few people taking a visible beyond their own sector um, position on biodiversity it there are huge opportunities for uh, reputational gain, if you like, for those that do. And I think that it's not just uh, individual businesses, but I think as a, a, as, as a collectives within sectors. I mean, that, for example, there is a s- just stunning opportunity in my mind for the property sector, the, 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 um, for, for lead players within that to get together and say, show to the outer world that they get the problem. The problem is not just within the cities, within their businesses, within their buildings. It's actually the life supporting systems that take place far, far away, but are absolutely critical to the living, existing and the thriving of the built environment. And at an industry sector level of investment, I think it would show extraordinary leadership to the wider business community that, for example, the property sector get it. It's not just about us. We have to go beyond and start things that people uh, currently just think as irrelevant, nothing to do with us, not connected with us, not important to us. That No, the property world has realised that even something as apparently disconnected as the international waters around the North Pole is sort of mission critical for life on earth and that we as a sector have get it the communications potential of that is really astonishing i mean globally frankly and london property um in particular um, has the capability to to have a ripple effect uh, its actions on on the wider world and that's what that's what we're looking for that's an incredible uh, call to action and and um and i echo your your sentiments and, and feel uh, equally passionate about the the need to expand beyond the the, the obvious horizon well, Penn, as we reach the uh, the end of our discussion, I've just got one final uh, challenge for you. And, and since this is really called the the forecast, I'm going to use my magic powers of teleportation and send you deep into the future. Uh, and I, I want you to, to really kind of close your eyes and tell us what you see. What is your What do you imagine in that future? What do the cities of tomorrow look like? What does the built environment look like all around you? What does tomorrow's tomorrow look like as you uh, open your eyes? So... Um one could be looking at around a metre of sea level rise. It could be as little as 40 centimetres, I think, and it could be as much as 1 metre 30 over the next 80 years. The impact of that alone on so many uh, major cities around the world will be just slightly mind-blowing. And I don't, you know, people just sort of, I think, kind of hoping that the Thames Barrier and, and more locally will, will solve it. Uh, and uh, I'm not so sure that it will. Second thing is uh, is the heating, really, the heat control systems for the built environment. You know, somehow we need to get energy consumption um, down, whether it's for cooling our built environments or for heating them. 
so getting the need for electricity essentially down is going to be a, a huge challenge. And my personal, I said to say, my personal thing for the third point I'd make is, <laughs> this is, I will, and I will express it personally, I just feel very strongly that, and there's a more and more actual scientific evidence coming in into this, that having a natural environment, a more natural looking and sounding with birdsong, for example, environment, uh, and the rustle of uh, leaves in the trees and so on, is something that urban developers should uh, could usefully embrace and I really say that not for the biodiversity perspective but from the mental health the calming and spiritual and general mental health benefits uh, I think are massively underrated and it's not impossible to do it's been tokenism a little bit to date I feel and I realize there are all sorts of complications um, to to even thinking about this um, but that's what I would like to see in my teleportation (laughs) that somehow the natural world is visible both to the feel to the ear and to to the eye so a greener uh, less energy consuming and potentially wetter uh, built environment for us all Panhato, thanks so much for joining me on the forecast it's been a, a fantastic uh, discussion if our listeners want to find out more about some of the topics we've been discussing and the work of your foundation where can they go uh, they can uh, call me direct on uh, on my mobile. Can't get it more direct than that. Um, and visit your website. And visit the website. Great. We'll put the link in the uh, in the show notes if, for those who want to uh, learn more. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I'm Basil Demarudis, and you've been listening to The Forecast. Thanks for tuning in. The Forecast has been brought to you by Four Partnership. We are a purpose-driven real estate investment firm that proves you can do well by doing right. Subscribe to the Four Partnership newsletter at fourpartnership.com for more insight and opinion.